Tonight's presentation is titled, Transforming Grace, Healing the Wounds that Bind. Dr. Hinman shares the power of God's grace in our daily lives. These presentations integrate 22 years' experience as a psychotherapist and educator, 15 years of personal recovery as an adult child, and 14 years of accepting Christ's gift of grace. He uses illustration from daily life to demonstrate the role of grace in the process of change. His style of presenting combines humor and sensitive self-disclosure in a thought-provoking, impactful way. The lectures can be experienced over and over, gaining something new each time. He gives useful tools and principles to help in gaining access to God's free gift. Tonight's presentation has been edited into two 45-minute segments. Part 1, Understanding the Power of Grace. Part 2, Six T's in Spirituality. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Henman. Wow, this is an amazing turnout, and there's something very, very special for me anytime I give a major talk. This is the first time that I've given a major talk in which instead of talking about the model, I'm including the author of the model in the presentation. So that's very significant for me. Recovery is an ongoing process, and I want to share with you that I'm still very much in transit. On Saturday, it dawned on me that if I try to see the 5 o'clock appointment I had scheduled for Monday, from 5 to 6, and I'm always notorious to be a little bit late, and then try to get from downtown Modesto here, that I was going to be very harried by 7 o'clock. So, being a recovering workaholic and recovering codependent, I gave the client a call and I said, I screwed up. I uh, have you scheduled for five and explained what was going on, asked if I could reschedule. There's no problem for the person. It's fine for them. What's significant to me is that I gave myself the gift of thought, even if it was a little bit late. Ideally, I would have known that before I scheduled the appointment. <coughs> it's kind of nice if we do it right the first time. However, I don't know about you guys, but for myself, I usually learn from the rearview mirror. And I began thinking about over the weekend as I was preparing for the talk, what do I need prior to the talk? And what I needed was some time to decompress from doing therapy to shifting gears for the presentation tonight. I'd like to dedicate this talk to several people, some of whom are here and some are not to my niece Debbie, because Debbie, I think, is the epitome of how even in the midst of unfairness and injustice, value and meaning can still be found. My niece is retarded. She has serious medical problems, has worked hard to gain independent living, and now, in the midst of finally getting some independence, her seizure disorder is getting to the point now that she has lost that ability to, to live independently. 
During the seizure, she has no sense of what's happening. Afterwards, she comes back around and she's able to be aware of the ground she's lost. But I've yet to see someone with the courage that this young woman has in the midst of that adversity. I think we can all learn a, a lot from Debbie. And also, I'd like to introduce and embarrass, it's my gift is embarrassing people, uh, Nathan and Jesse, who are my two sons, 9 and 11 in the back. We can all stare at them and they'll shrink. <laughs> and it reminds me, <laughs> it reminds me of a talk they were at in San Diego at the State Psych Association meeting last year. And Nathan and Jesse had their uh, Australian hats on, and Nathan wanted me to wear mine for the talk. I passed on that, but they, they had their little heads there in the back row with their little hats on. And the reason they were there is because the year before in San Diego at the State Psych Association, I gave a presentation on care. And at that presentation, one of my very worst fears came true. It's a fear that as a recovering adult child, I think any of you that are in that process can understand, and that is having a party and no one comes, like, you know, that I'd give the talk tonight and no one would show up. You can see that that is very grounded fear. I was creative enough after the Journey series that I was able to fear that even after 700 people showed up for the first night. They're going to all realize that it's not any, well, that's, that's part of recovery. But as luck would have it, when I was giving my presentation in San Diego, it was right at the time that Desert Storm began. And everyone was glued to their TV set as the battle was, was, was beginning. And so I had this large room and three people showed up. And so I was thinking quickly as no one was showing up, well, at least I can tape it and they can, you know, psychologists are big at buying tapes and they'll be able to hear it that way. So I was using the taping machine as, as a backup, and then the guy came in and said, you know, I can't get the tape machine to work. <laughs> so I'm giving this momentous talk in front of three people, one of whom I brought with me as a friend. <laughs> one of whom asked if it would be okay if he left in the middle because he had another meeting to go to. And the third was a person who was working in, as a, in a care group down in San Diego and came to see the person that had written the book. Real impressive uh, first meeting, you can imagine. In the midst of that worst fear, I realized I could live through it. That was the gift of that talk. It may not have had any meaning for anyone else, but for myself, it had tremendous meaning. Because I realize that even if my worst fear happens, if I keep my eyes on my big brother, and I felt his hand around me, saying, well, you know, there's always another time. Go ahead and give the talk to the people that are here. So I did. I gave it through him, to them, and afterwards, then I just felt miserable for a while, being in recovery. I went back overwards until I found out about the situation with the war. And at that point, I relieved a little bit and realized it wasn't just that no one wanted to hear about a self-help group that didn't generate money for clinicians. It was just my own paranoia. Tonight, I'm going to be talking 
from an integrated standpoint, the integration is 22 years of very full-time clinical practice as a psychotherapist educator, 15 years of personal recovery as an adult child from codependency and workaholic kinds of issues, and 14 years as a Christian. As with most things in my life, I go about things backwards. I became a clinician first, got into recovery second, became a Christian third. That's not the way people tend to do it, but that's my style. Somehow I back into things somehow. <coughs> but I found that in those years as a clinician, I'd see many different kinds of presenting problems. Depression, anxiety, panic disorders. I saw relationship difficulties. I saw uh, chemical dependency, codependency kinds of issues. And as I would go further and further into symptoms, I kept coming up with a similar finding when I'd get below the <coughs> symptoms, and that was this hole in the middle. That there would be, instead of the healthy connection between the self, others, and some sense of higher power, some sense of meaning, that instead there were fractures, and there was a big rat hole eaten out of the middle of the self, of people. And the, the result of that, of that that chewed out rat hole was a feeling of low self-esteem. That it didn't matter what profession, what education, how much money, how good the looks were, none of those material things seemed to make any difference if the person had experienced that kind of gnawing, that kind of eating away. Again, as doing things backwards, I believed in the model of Christianity way before I became a Christian. The model itself of grace, the model of no-fault learning, inherently was a very useful model to do therapy from, even without acknowledging the author. Even without appreciating the fullness of what that model had to offer, in terms of recovery, the model, even without giving acknowledgement to the author, still had the power to assist in transforming. So those of you here tonight that are Christians, great. Those of you that are not Christians, great. If it has meaning for you to just look at the model, great. If it has value for you to look at the model and the author, great. If you notice wherever you're coming from, that's what's being accepted. You notice that? That's not an accident. Because change can only take place when we start where we're starting. And it's only by relaxing into where we're starting that we can move forward. I'd like to read a description of of my big brother. We often forget that Jesus is, is our big brother. It's a very different relationship than father. This is from the, the care handbook. And in care, because of the fact that we're dealing with people, some of whom believe in Christ, some who do not believe in Christ, we use the term higher power. I'm going to describe the higher power as it is described in the handbook on page 120. We can practice the experience of relating to our personified higher power. 
We can feel what it is like to look into the eyes of our higher power and see the unconditional love that is felt for us. We can begin to feel the absolute faith and confidence our higher power has in our ability to change and grow and to move forward on our journey into recovery. We can safely be open to the honest, accurate feedback our higher power gives us as an expression of caring respect. We can feel a powerfully supportive arm around us as we walk through difficult times, remembering that we are never again have to go through those times alone. That's my higher power. That's my big brother. And that's what I believe when I say higher power. That's what I believe is possible. It's who I was leaning on before the talk began tonight. It's who I lean on every day. Because growing up as an adult child, I so much wanted to be accepted. I so much wanted to have people like me that I gave up liking myself. I traded in liking myself to try to purchase other people's liking of me. And it wasn't until I realized that no matter what I did, my big brother would still accept me where I am. It doesn't mean he likes some of the things I did. It doesn't mean he likes some of the things that I do. My actions. But my being is unconditionally loved and accepted as is. And to have someone that no matter what time of the day or night will look you in the eye, straight in the eye, and say, well, Jim, you're blowing it. What are we going to do? How can I help? There's no condemnation in that relationship. So it makes it safe to have it be a come-as-you-are party because of that. And yet, this whole story of being alive on earth would be very different if Adam and Eve had had a slightly different view of God. I want to present the first certifiable example of psychotic behavior. Okay? Here's Adam and Eve. Eve and Adam have eaten the apple. And they're going to hide behind a bush so God can't see them. I want you to think about that for a moment. What bush are you going to hide behind that God can't see you? Isn't that a little bit like saying, now you can't see me because my eyes are closed? <laughs> I wonder what would have happened at that time if Adam had said to God, God, we blew it. Actually, as Adam, I, Adam, blew it by not giving leadership with Eve number one, and by not taking the responsibility to do what you taught us. I was wrong. I will accept whatever you have to offer as a consequence for that. All I ask is you forgive me somewhere in that process. If Adam had approached God with love instead of fear, with open, accepting honesty and trust rather than defensiveness and denial, what might have happened to the world? I believe it's very possible something very different would have happened. But since that time, we've continued the same process 
over and over and over. We close our eyes, God's not going to notice. Or we just simply define God out of existence. After all, it's not very sophisticated to talk about spiritual things. Right? I mean, is it really academically swathe and deboner to be speaking about your own personal relationship with God? If you could see, when I took my license, I, I became a Christian when I was studying to take my licensing exam in psychology. It's the worst possible time to become a Christian. Worst possible time, because you're, you're busy being neurotic, studying for the exam. And so I went to San Francisco to take the exam. And if you can imagine 500 or more neurotic psychologists-to-be <laughs> kind of And I was sitting over there reading, uh, believe it or not, was, I was reading uh, from this little New Testament book uh, that, that Sonia, my wife, had given me. I can't remember where I was reading in it, but I was reading somewhere in there. And I was just focusing on the fact that I knew from footprints that I wasn't going to be taking this exam. While I was supposed to be studying, I happened to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and half of Acts. <laughs> I kept thinking, I gotta get back to studying, I gotta get back to studying. And I kept feeling this urge to read. So I said, okay, buddy, I gave you time, now you help me out. And that's the kind of relationship we've had for 15 years. That's how I would talk to a big brother. Are you really formal with the big brother? Or is it first name basis? Can you joke with him? So I went in there and I said, okay, Lord, this is what I'm going to do. We made a deal. Let's make a deal. I'll answer the ones I can. You answer the ones I can't. <laughs> Works for me. <laughs> this is true. This is true. So I'm going through, and I'm, I actually, I'd studied a lot, and I, I did study a lot, and I, I knew a lot of them. And any of them I didn't, I'd put a little hash mark down, and I'd just say, okay. And I'd, the first one the Spirit seemed to lead, I'd answer. I, I didn't even try to figure it out or second-guess myself. I did well on the exam. The Lord did outstanding. I took the top off the exam, <laughs> truly. I got the best score in my school uh, that year. When I counted the ones that I actually knew, I passed. <laughs> I passed. He blew the top off of it. We have to appreciate paradox if we're going to understand recovery. We need to appreciate paradox if we're going to understand Christianity. And we're going to particularly need to understand paradox if we're going to put those two things together. We're in a world that tends to be very lineal. Cause, effect. A causes B. A follows B. And don't ever give me an A-G-R-N-X type of message. And yet that's how the unconscious mind works. The unconscious mind works in a very curvilinear sort of fashion. It's not logical or rational to assume that the human mind is logical and rational. It's not logical to make that assumption. And yet it does make sense. There is a logic, but it's not lineal logic. It's much more associational and it's much more paradoxical. Like, for example, presenting a talk 
Still, even though I've given a lot of talks, I'm always nervous beforehand. The worst thing I could do is get nervous about being nervous. In the handbook, we call that second-order feelings. So instead, I accept the fact that I'm nervous. Not that I want to be nervous, but I accept the fact that I'm nervous. And again, I make a deal with my big brother. I prepare, he gives the talk. So you guys decide how, how good a job he does. <laughs> I'm just standing back waiting. Um, usually before a talk, I, I get some kind of gift, special picture. One time it was putting up a basketball hoop in the Journey series or playing with fireworks. One time it was Nathan and his little friend having flush a toilet, uh, the tooth uh, toothbrush down the toilet right before the talk, and I was preparing for the talk by reaching down on the toilet trying to see if I could scoop out the uh, toothbrush. Not to use it again, <laughs> but so that it wouldn't cause plumbing problems. I want to clarify that. This Christmas, this Christmas, I got my gift for the talk, and I want to share that. This, my sons are both very athletic, academically very good. I'm not sure where they get their athletics from, but they have all kinds of trophies. And I've shared with my boys that the closest I ever came to a trophy was in debate when I got a gavel one year for parliamentary procedure and that I really was glad that they had the opportunity to have trophies and that was really neat and I'd not thought any more about it. So Christmas Day I opened up my gift from the boys and it says 1992 first place number one dad with love Jesse and Nate. The reason this has the meaning that it has for me, and you need to understand the context of this, one is the kind of spirit of sensitivity that my boys have, that they would want me to have a trophy. Number two, that they felt if I was going to have a trophy for anything, it should be for being a dad. The context of that message, though, is that when we found out that we were pregnant, when Sonia and I found out, we were, and we were pregnant, <laughs> we had the kids. I don't want to trade places with her, but um, we had the kids. When we found out we were pregnant, I kept praying. I was a Christian by that point. I said, Lord, please give me daughters. I don't know how to be a father to sons. Because of my own upbringing, I didn't know how to do it. I was scared to death that if I had sons, I would be the same father that I had had. Not that my father didn't love me within his own ability to love. That's not what I'm saying. This is not a put down. But I didn't know how. I didn't know how to play catch. I didn't know how to play any of the kind of games that kids like to play. And so I played, please let me have a daughter's because then Sonia can do most of it and I can just <laughs> goo goo and gaga at him, you know dance with them when they get old enough and that kind of thing. Well, God has a great sense of humor. He gave me two sons. <laughs> and it has stretched me more than you could imagine. But I've learned more about recovery because of the gift of those two sons. I've learned more about recovery coaching soccer. I love coaching soccer. I've coached Jesse's teams before, coached Nathan's teams. 
And in a way, I see Jesus a lot like a soccer coach, or at least the kind of soccer coach I am. I'm the loudest soccer coach in the league, bar none. Any of you that have ever been out at the field, it's not an exaggeration. You can hear me two fields over. I am out there, and my son Nathan discovered he could play goalie. And, and when the team would be coming with the, with the ball going toward him, I'd be like this, and I'd be, you know, I'd be jumping up and down, and I'd be screaming, and my mind would be covering the whole field. These are under 10s, which means that they're all brain damaged at that age. You know? <laughs> if they aren't getting focused attention, they're in la-la land. And that's just appropriate for the age, because they're nine years old. And so I'd have to keep everyone's name, you know, it, it mentioned everybody's name and, and all this kind of stuff. And I had to believe in them, which I did. I believed in their ability to do the best they could do. I didn't care if we won the game. I didn't care if we lost the game. I cared that they gave the best they could give, that they would be developing a self-concept of being a soccer player, of being an athlete, because I didn't have that growing up. So the little 10-year-old Jimmy inside was able to be part of the team, even from the sideline. But I wasn't really on the sideline because I was jumping around so much. I'd be exhausted. I was by five throat lozenges, less with my assistant coach, and it'd be a five throat lozenge game, just popping one after the other because I'd be screaming so loud. On Monday morning, clients would say, oh, good soccer game, huh? Because I'd be hoarse two days later. But that's my view of what Jesus is in relationship to recovery. He's right there and he's believing in me. I fall flat on my face. I pick my nose as the ball goes into the goal. And he says, Jim, it works better if you keep both hands in front of you. I mean, it's no fault learning in the truest sense of the word. And there's something about that kind of enthusiastic cheerleader absolute faith no fault learning that makes change not only possible it makes change the path of least resistance change becomes a natural thing in that kind of atmosphere now tonight's talk is not on salvation it's on recovery I want to make a distinction again between those two things Again, because this is a significant stumbling block often uh, for people. Uh, in principle seven, there's eight principles. I'll, I'll read the other ones in a moment. The seventh principle in new program, new program is, by the way, 2,000 years old. <laughs> totally plagiarized, lifted shamelessly, and put into American for 1990. The seventh principle is a commitment to a growing relationship with a loving higher power. This principle is a common stumbling block for many people desiring recovery, both in 12-step programs and in care. One reason for this is the confusion between religion and spirituality. The specific name we give our higher power has to do with the question of salvation and religion, while the personal qualities we see in our higher power has a direct impact on our recovery. We have found that as human beings, we do have a basic need to feel a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives. This need is to feel a loving relationship within ourselves, between ourselves and others, and with a force greater than self. And this is what we call spirituality. 
We recognize the fundamental differences between religion and spirituality and are talking about the basic need for spiritual relationship and recovery. We are not saying the two cannot coexist, but rather appreciate the differences. In care, we believe that no one has the right to force his or her beliefs on another. So the reason that we have used the term higher power is not because I'm ashamed of my big brother, but rather it's a come-as-you-are party. Some people have been so wounded in his name, beaten up in his name, that even his name will repel them. But their experience of him is so different than my experience of him that many people have to start where they're starting. And they may stay there. Someone may, in their recovery at age 97, believing in the great pine tree. And what I say to them, if, if, if that pine tree, by having its branch around your shoulders, walking with you, does it for you, that's up to you. But there's something about modeling. There's something about the process of having someone to emulate, to be like, that really aids in the learning process. So again, we're talking about spirituality, not, not religion at this point. And tonight we're talking about recovery rather than talking about salvation. I want to make a point here, and that is, those of you that are familiar with Scripture know about the road is narrow, and in another place that my load is light. You know human beings have a tendency, when they hear something like the road is narrow, to assume you better pucker up, tighten up, and just really walk a narrow line. As if somehow, boy, you take one step off one way or the other, you're going to fall off this chasm to the depths of whatever. But I'd like to give you a different interpretation of the road is narrow. Look at the human body for a moment. Look at temperature in the human body. What happens if you go up, say, oh, just 10 degrees? What happens? Five degrees for an extended period of time, dropping five degrees. What happens? What happens if the oxygen intake is dropped off just a little bit, too much or too little? Homeostasis or dynamic balance is very narrow in its balance. It's not rigid because it's wanting to be rigid. It's just the nature of the organism that certain qualities fit together in a certain way to create a certain result called life. So I would like to in, in, encourage all of you that instead of being afraid by a notion like that the road is narrow, to realize that the other half of that is that my load is light. But there is a reality that if as human beings we repel those around us, if we hurt those around us, we're going to suffer certain consequences. If we abuse ourselves, we're going to suffer certain consequences. If we try too hard to be good, we suffer certain consequences. It's called, it's called interfering with the Holy Spirit. When you're trying to be too good, you don't want to trust something like a spirit to, to guide you. 
In fact, Sonia and I were talking the other night before we went to bed. We were, we were commenting on how one quality of being human is the need to improve on perfection. As human beings, we tend to have that need to improve on perfection. The Jews did it when they took, they asked God for laws. God gave them ten laws. Ten simple laws of profound wisdom. The Ten Commandments. By the time man finished improving on that, there was a set of laws that would cripple Hercules. No human being could possibly follow all the law that man put together. But where it started was ten simple, straightforward, owner's manual kinds of recommendations for healthy living. Man improved on it. Now we're under a new covenant called Christianity. The basis of that covenant is grace. Freely given, unearned. And we've tended to improve on it with legalism. Yeah, I know that God is giving grace, but I better not risk that because the road is narrow. The fact is, when we start improving on perfection, we only have one way to go, and that's down. Let's go back to the basics. The basics are that we have grace, which is not license, but it is freedom. Freedom to start where you're starting to move forward. Please hear that. I'd like to just briefly read the, the eight principles that make up new program. There is such a fear of new age um, that even the thought new program sometimes can give shudders. So I, I want to read the, the horrific notions that, that are making up new program here just to get an idea of, of how subversive it is. The fundamental principles of new program include a growing commitment to the following attitudes. One, being non-judgmental, open, and accurate. Two, believing that we are all fallible human beings. Three, understanding that we react to life through our perceptual filters rather than directly to reality. Four, acknowledging and accepting the reality of the present. Five, believing in mutual respect and valuing. Six, nurturing a, a healthy parenting relationship with a wounded child within. Seven, nurturing a growing relationship with a loving higher power. And eight, maintaining a continuing commitment to recovery, both our own and others. Pretty subversive, isn't it? Isn't that pretty radical? That's new program. All biblically sound. All biblically sound. What we've tried to do in care is focus on self-esteem, focusing on that hole in the center of the pie, to begin filling that. And we have for self-esteem not a Marin hot tub, feel good, do what you want to do type of mentality, but rather a characterological view of self-esteem. Character is defined as the total quality of a person's behavior as revealed in his habits of thought and expression, his attitudes and interests, his actions, and his personal philosophy of life. Now, as far as I'm concerned, if I come down and I mug this woman sitting in front and I steal her purse and I knock her up alongside of the head, I think it's pretty appropriate to feel bad about that. How about you? Self-esteem is not simply feeling good. Self-esteem is a relationship you're having with yourself, 
with others, and with God. That is a creation of self-esteem. Not just feeling good. Sometimes it doesn't feel good. Have you noticed that? Sometimes when you're working new muscles in recovery, when you're risking new things, you kind of wish you kind of hadn't had to do it. You like to maybe forget about doing it sometimes because it hurts. So what? Who said it wasn't going to hurt? Who said it was going to be comfortable? I know, I never promised it to be comfortable. I can guarantee you that it won't be. But I can't promise you that it would be. But we need to look at self-esteem because it's at the very center of the process of change. And within that is a definition of self and a de definition of esteeming. And again, this is where we get into trouble. In the West, we have a notion of a singular view of self, even though it's not biblically correct, even. But we have the notion that I am me, period. The fact is, if you could put the next one up, Bob. Instead of that, there are many different parts of self that accumulate over the process of change. When I was four years old, and, and some of you have heard this story from the Journey series, I won't go into detail, but I used to have to go to the bathroom in kindergarten, and I wouldn't make it all the way, and so I'd wet my pants on the way to the bathroom, and I'd sit out on the sandbox waiting for my pants to dry. So there's a little four-year-old Jimmy that was sitting at that sandbox, hating himself, just saturated in shame, year after year after year. I disconnected from him. He's, he was stuck in that kind of pool of, of self-rejection and self-hatred. By the time I was six, I was flunking out of all the different subjects, and was pretty sure no one would want to play with me if they didn't have to. So the little six-year-old that knew he was, a, he was stupid, he knew he was a failure, uh, knew he was unlovable, by age 10, there was a part of me that was really kind of resenting having to work so hard at being liked. I was a chameleon. If you wanted me to be 9 foot tall, 6 foot tall, 2 foot tall, 100 pounds, 500 pounds, male, female, you name it, I'll be it. That's what I did to survive. <clears throat> but I hated myself throughout that process. The cost of being a chameleon is you have no sense of self. So when you think of who Jim is, when you think of who you are, you need to ask yourself, how much of you have you left behind in the process of growing up? How many kids are floating in that pool of self-rejection inside your own being? So when you look at self, please look accurately in terms of that adult child character that has more than one aspect to it, one more than one part to it. Because this is a big stumbling block for many Christians. Many Christians feel guilty to have problems because they know the Lord, they believe in grace, and yet they feel dead inside. They feel depressed, they, whatever the addiction is, or the anxiety. You need to understand the nature of the Holy Spirit to, to understand this, this paradox again. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman. The Holy Spirit will not go where it's not invited. You cannot invite the Holy Spirit on the other side of the wall to the parts of you that you have rejected and disowned.
So the only work the Holy Spirit can do is on this side of that wall. The parts of self that have been disowned, the Holy Spirit does not have access to until you build a bridge. And you need to understand that. You also need to understand that that, that kind of disconnecting of parts of self doesn't mean that you had war stories growing up. I often see people who feel very guilty because they don't feel like they have a right to have been wounded. You know, I had a normal upbringing. Uh, there was no alcohol in my family. There was no physical abuse. And as you get further into the story, you may realize that at a certain age, there was a crisis in the family. You may have, you find that at a certain age, the kid had to be a latchkey kid because of reality. Maybe there's a split up in the, between the parents. There's lots of different things that are not out of the norm that can be very traumatic and create wounding. It's really sad to me when a person feels guilty about feeling wounded. If you're feeling wounded, it's because you're wounded. The fact that you're a Christian doesn't mean you're not good enough as a Christian or that you don't have enough faith. The fact is, until you allow that faith up to the other side of the wall, the Spirit's not going to be able to do what it can do. So, on the one hand, we have two different views of self. Singular, which I, I professionally reject as well as... Uh, I just reject it. It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit what I've seen over the last 22 years. Or that adult-child character where there's different parts to self that come in the process of growing up. The other thing is the issue of what do we esteem? Do we esteem fancy cars, good jobs, high degrees, big incomes, good looks, athletic prowess? If any of those materials, a big home, if any of these things are what you're basing esteem on, then it's appropriate to feel anxious. Because you never know when your job's going to end. You do know your looks are going to end at some point, at least by society's definition. You don't know when you're going to have a sudden financial reversal. So if your esteem, what you esteem, what you value in the world is based on any of those kinds of things, anxiety makes sense. Anxiety is appropriate. What is it you value? Really think about that. What is it you value most of all? Is it something that can be taken away? If it is something that can be taken away, then insecurity and anxiety are appropriate emotions. As much as I value Jesse and Nathan, as much as I value Sonia, I know I could live without them. I don't want to live without them. It would be a huge gaping hole in me if that were the case. But you know, I know I could. Therefore, I can afford to be intimate with them. If I couldn't live without them, I couldn't truly afford to be intimate with them, could I? For fear of something happening. On the other hand, my relationship with my big brother is something no one can take from me. No one can separate me from that relationship. Therefore, there is no source of anxiety in that. 
the most valuable thing I have is that relationship. Out of that, everything else comes. Now, I had it lucky. I really had it lucky, even though I had many wounds. I had a mother who was able to give me small g grace. In other words, love, unconditional love. She couldn't give it to herself, but she could give it to me. So later, as an adult, and I began to understand about this grace thing, capital G, grace thing, it made some sense to me at a feeling level because of my mom, and it made sense to me in terms of my feelings about clients that I'd worked with. Because I know that when I'm working with a client and we're struggling through things, I feel that, that, that caring, I feel that, that belief and that faith in them, often before they feel it in themselves. So it made some sense to me. But if we're going to value something, let's value something that can't be taken away. What does God say is of value? If all else fails, look it up in the dictionary, you know? If all else fails, let's look and see what God says is valuable so we can improve on the perfection of it. Okay, just in case you want to. God has the following view of what value is as human beings. And that is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and strength. Number one, love Him. And that's not an ego thing. That's for our sake that He's saying that. And love others as you love yourself. Now really hear that. It's a three-part equation. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love others as yourself. really hear that. It's a three-part equation. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love others as yourself. Now, many of us forget the first one, which is loving God, which powers the other two, helps make the other two possible. But then if we are Christians, often we will say, well, I'll just, I'll just sacrifice No, you go ahead. No, 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 don't give anything to me. I'll, I'll just, I'm okay. Because I'm being a good Christian. And yet it violates God's view of valuing. What God says is love others as you love yourself. And those two come out of love me with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. In the process of all that love comes power. To love God the Father, who cared enough about us to send His Son, knowing in advance He's going to be hung up on a cross. I mean, how many of you would love that much? I wouldn't send Jesse or Nathan. I mean, I, I care about many of you, but I wouldn't send one of them for you guys. You're on your own, guys. You know, that's what I'd say. Luckily, I'm not God. 
But that's how much God loved us, loves us, and will love us. The Holy Spirit. Now, for many people, the Holy Spirit is something that is sort of, you've heard of it, but not necessarily certain what it is. To me, it is truly the great comforter, the, the ability to trust that place inside of myself where wisdom comes. Not so much knowledge as wisdom. The timing. If there's something I really need to say to someone, I want to reach out in the spirit for that. Because the timing and the intonation and, and, the, and the overall quality of caring comes from the Holy Spirit and our big brother Jesus. So we have with us a battle if we accept what God has to say. It's all about love, right? Love. You know, we had a big special the other day on the 60s and all about love. You know, hey, Ashbury, love. You know, Woodstock and love. Love is not a wimpy emotion. Love is an attitude, as we're talking about it. The power of love is in an attitude, not in a feeling. The feeling comes out of the attitude. The opposite of that is fear. And like I said before, if Adam and Eve had come from a position of love and trust rather than fear and defending, I wonder what would have happened. Okay? We need to be aware of those two choices. When we're afraid, the fear builds. Defending makes sense. When you say to yourself, I got to protect myself against Howard. You all know Howard and what a mean guy Howard is, so I got to protect myself from Howard. That's a defensive posture. In care, what we encourage instead is protecting Howard from bruising me as a loving thing. I care enough about Howard to protect him from hurting me. So the power of love, the power of the Holy Spirit is able to be a part of the interaction because it's not a spirit of fear. It's a spirit of love, a spirit of relationship. So we really need to understand that. I'd like you to take a moment and close your eyes or keep them open or do one of each. (laughs) But you got to do one of the above. And I want you to think about your self-esteem. I want you to think about what you've been hearing so far in the talk, about the fact there are many different parts to self, about that kind of rat hole inside where, where self has been rejected. to think about what you esteem, what you value, and how that pertains to your own self. Just to notice where you're starting. Where is your self-esteem starting tonight at this point? Just take some time, take a deep breath. Just let yourself feel that.
self-esteem is a result of these questions. And yet they're questions we often don't ask. That concludes Disc A. Please insert Disc B.